Lord, uh, I, just, I just thank you, God. Thank you for the beginning of a new week that in many ways it, it, it launches it into ending a year and beginning a new one. And as we do that, I pray, God, that uh, you would help us consider what you may want us to focus on. Maybe how you may want us to narrow our scope to what you say is actually most important. I pray that you would um, give us something of an emerging word for us personally as we walk through your word, God. And we pray for your blessing over our time. We ask that you would, you would encourage us, inspire us, stir something within us, God. May your spirit be here among us. May it remain. We ask for this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So the new year. It really gives us an opportunity, and I'd like us to consider that it gives us an opportunity to simplify our lives. And I think it, it, it gives us this opportunity by narrowing down the scope of what we are focusing on to be a little bit more God-centered around what he actually says is worthy of our pursuit. And this is, if, if, we, if we engage with this, if we respond to what perhaps God may say is most valuable for us to pursue and follow after, what will happen is it will draw a tension point in our own lives because it will challenge our perspective on what we think is most valuable. And if we allow him, he will challenge what he says is most and it will bump up against what we constantly long to say is number one. And that perspective, the perspective we hold on what we say is actually worthy of our pursuit, it, it will affect how we engage and how we walk and how we experience this new year. Because we know perspectives, they end up filtering. A lens decides how we process what we experience. We know that. Now, I was reminded of this several weeks ago uh, in an incident that happened in my own life. And in order for us to really understand this, we have to know that uh, my wife and I, we, we own a cat. <laughs> and when I say we, I mean her. She owns a cat. But I love my wife, and so I like this cat. And it was shortly after we got married that, uh, you know, this, this cat was needing a home, and my wife uh, felt inclined to give us the opportunity to own it. And, and we ended up adopting it into our home. And, um, it was kind of rather sensitive and scared and, uh, and kind of very cautious around the house. And over some time, it ended up developing an infection. And we ended up taking it to a local vet by our house, and we ended up getting it checked out. And the vet checked out this, this you know, our cat. Her name is Nala. And uh, he ended up letting us know, your cat is actually really sensitive. That's why it developed this infection. But we have an antibiotic, and, and, and it'll, it'll remove it. But just so you understand, this cat was going to get an infection. because It, it got this infection because it was, it was stress-induced. And, and I laughed. I, 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 I thought he was joking, you know? But he didn't laugh. He was very serious. And, and so once I realized he wasn't joking, I asked him, OK, doctor, can you explain to me some, something? How is it possible that a cat that sleeps all day and all night has food in its bowl at all hours, has a roof over its head, has no need whatsoever, gets care and attention? How is it possible that this cat gets stressed out. <laughs> and he looked at me with a rather serious look, and he says, I think you're the one who stresses her out. <laughs> you, you caused this. And I said, touche. Maybe that's true. But 
we ended up giving that antibiotic, and, and the infection ended up going away. And you fast forward several years, and this year, you may remember there were several storms that rolled through the Bay Area. And uh, you know, there was a lot of rain, a lot of thunder and lightning and such. And it was on one of these nights that uh, we were, I was just asleep in the middle of the night, and my, our room just lit up because there was lightning that struck you know, close enough by for the light to, to enter our room. And it just kind of, and then the thunder roared through, and the wind and the rain and everything. It just kind of woke me up. But what also woke me up was that our cat was crying. And normally I ignore it, but you know, I <laughs> started realizing, wait a minute, this storm, it's gonna, it's, this is stressing you out, isn't it? <laughs> And I started kind of just putting the pieces together. This stress is going to cause you to get an infection, isn't it? And that infection is going to, it's going to cost us money. <laughs> and I had a really hard time going back to sleep. And lo and behold, a couple days later, she, was, she had an infection. And my wife, late at night, around past 1030, she discovers that our cat has an infection and is sickly and it's walking. And this cat that that would never survive in any other point in human history <laughs> ends up becoming the, the one that you know, my wife wants me to care for. And she, we have this dialogue in which she lets me know she has to get up earlier than I do the next day. And so I should be the one taking it to the vet and puts it in the carry box. And again, I love my wife. And so I like this cat. And, <laughs> and so I grab this, you know, I, I grab the carry on. And she, you know, she's endeared my, herself to me. But we're, we're driving to the vet, 24-hour local vet, which we go to several minutes away from the house. And it's around 10.45, we get there, and the doors are locked. And this has happened before. And it's a 24-hour hospital, and so I figured, you know what, this, is, this has happened before. The doors are locked, and, but the side door, it has a bolt that has propped it open. And so I go ahead, and don't think anything of it. I've done this before, and so I walk through the side door, and I walk in, and as I walk in, the back rooms, are, the, the lights are all off. And, the front rooms have the lights on, but nobody is there. And the carpets have been shuffled around. You could tell they had just mopped the tile. And I thought, wow, you know what? This, maybe this is their time of cleaning up. I, I don't know. And it kind of just struck me as a little bit eerie, a little bit odd. You know, It was new for me. I kind of expected somebody to be there. And so get to the counter. No, there's no bell to get anyone's attention and, and put you know, Nala on the counter space and just kind of wait for a solid two to three minutes. And I know, it doesn't sound like much. But when you kind of don't want to do something to begin with, it becomes a long time. And, <laughs> and all of a sudden, as I'm waiting there, I'm, I'm kind of just feeling like, boy, this, this is a hospital, right? Somebody should, I don't know. Maybe there's some activity. But after some time, the assistant ends up walking out with a chart. And she's looking at the chart. And she's walking. And she's making her way towards the counter. And as she gets to the counter, she looks at me. And she drops the chart, jumps back, and lets out the scariest yell. She's, oh! <laughs> And she just, it scared me, and I jumped back, and she starts fanning herself. <gasps> and as she does that, she recognizes me, and she's like, oh my goodness, you scared me, you scared me. And I had already felt a little tenuous because of the situation I had entered into, and now I felt like, boy, this is, this is a little unprofessional. I mean, it's a 24-hour hospital. Did you not expect anyone to come in? Is there, is, is there this a different expectation? And so I just kind of sat there and was like, oh. And she made me nervous. And, and then she kind of settled down. And she gathered herself. And then she looked at me and says, how can I help you? <laughs> I thought, boy, that was a lot. 
that was a lot to take in. And so I explained the situation. I'm hoping the vet doesn't need to look at the cat. You, we've been here before this year, several years now. Can you just, can you just give us the antibiotic? It saves a little bit of money. And so she says, oh, yeah, yeah, I would love to. But the vet has gone home for the night. And um, let me see if I can go upstairs and ask him to come down. I thought, boy, just, again, I'm just, my perception, right? I start evaluating what's going on. And if I just start wondering, maybe, maybe we should find a different 24-hour hospital. I mean, I don't know. Maybe a vet should be present. And maybe he lives upstairs. This is how things work. And so she goes ahead, and I say, OK, no worries. And so she goes in the back. She you know, hastily moves back. And then a couple minutes later, comes down. And behind her is a man walking out in his pajamas. <laughs> and I felt the same way. I thought, <laughs> and it was the vet. And he comes up to me in his pajamas and shakes my hand. And I shake his hand. And I just kind of become more comfortable with, we're going to another vet next time. <laughs> I don't know. I don't want that, like a high level of professionalism, but just a little professionalism, right? Just like a little, just like scrubs. Does it, not even nice ones. Doesn't matter, right? Some degree of, but I just kind of sit there. He, look, he recognizes me, he shakes my hand, asks me what's going on. I explain to him the situation. And I, as I do, he says, oh, yeah, no worries. He talks to the assistant. Give him this prescription. Go ahead. Let him go. And, and she's gathering the prescription. And I'm just sitting there. And I'm just kind of evaluating everything, feeling a little bit, wondering how we never caught on to the operation here, you know? And so I decided to just kind of ask. I just double-checking. I said, just, hey, just a double-check. You know, I'm giving her my card to pay for the antibiotic. And I said, so you guys are a 24-hour veterinary hospital, right? And she says, Oh, no. No, we close at 10. I, I know you've done this before. You go around the side. The front doors are locked. <laughs> but you manage to go in, you know, just around the side. And I just sat there and started thinking about the entire implications. <laughs> I had come in expecting a 24-hour service. The lights should be on. Somebody should be at the counter. They should be ready to receive us. The vets should be there. Activity should be going on, not this eerie, empty feeling. And all of a sudden, I started judging the professionalism. Then a doctor comes out in his pajamas in a 24-hour vet hospital. I don't know. I'm not that familiar, but maybe that's a little out of place. And, and yet, in their perspective, reality was that they were closed. <laughs> they had locked the front doors. They were cleaning. And this is now the third time I've done this. <laughs> and they decided to go above and beyond their service. And in their mind, they thought, man alive, this, this man is so concerned for their, his cat. <laughs> We're closed, but we need to help this man. And I'm going to go, you need to get out of bed, doctor. And you need to come downstairs and make sure that we can give him what he needs so he can go on home and, and cure his cat. And I thought, a perception can alter everything of how we experience it, can't it? And as we prepare ourselves for the coming year, if we were to seek to strive for a lens that narrows down our scope to focus on that one area that God says is most important, well, I think it's going to adjust how we experience the coming year. And Jesus loved to challenge people's perceptions. He constantly sought to illuminate how we might perceive what God thinks is most valuable. And then he would bring to the forefront what God actually says 
is worthy of our pursuit. And he would do this through a variety of ways, but one of the ways he would do this is through analogies, parables that would give his contemporaries easy access to how God may want to work, what his economy might be like, what God says his activity looks like. And I'm hoping that as we walk through these passages, we start to get a stronger sense of what God may be saying to us, what lens he may want us to wear, what perception to alter. See, if you open up your handout... We'll go ahead and step into the first parable in Matthew 13. And this is a segment in the Gospels in which Jesus has been speaking in analogies and parables. And now he's speaking to his group of 12 disciples. We're told in verse 44, he says, The kingdom of heaven, it's like this. It's like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And he says, And then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has, and he buys that field. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who found a treasure and in his joy sells everything so that he could buy that field. And here's what he's saying. He's saying something that would actually not be far out of reach for his people that were listening to him because we know the Middle East is actually has been home to the oldest societies in human history. And we also know that it has a reputation for having treasure hidden. Why? Because a nomadic tribe-like people, with the absence of in financial institutions or any way of ensuring one's wealth, in ancient times what would happen is either within their tent or within their degree of property, they would dig a hole, and whatever they deemed valuable, they would bury it. And they would cover it. And only one or two people from the family or the clan would know where this was. And the family treasure would be buried in a field or in a tent. And unforeseen circumstances like maybe warfare or captivity and being taken exiled out or perhaps even a sickness that would quickly approach on a person and would end up removing them, taking their life, taking with them also the knowledge of where that treasure may be. All of a sudden, buried treasure was lost and forgotten treasure. And Jesus is using a readily accessible illustration. He says, you may have heard folklore of different people finding treasure. Well, the kingdom of heaven is like that. It's like a man who is just wandering through a field, not really purposefully looking for anything, but maybe as he goes, he sees something coming up out of the earth. It goes and discovers it. He uncovers it, and he realizes, oh my goodness, this is of tremendous value. And he covers it. And in his joy, he goes back, he sells all of his possessions so he could buy the field. Because the treasure is in the field. And here's what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't deal with the ethics of not being truthful about what's in the field. That's not his point. His point, if you could hear it this way, he's saying the kingdom of heaven, when we truly understand its worth, we understand that it is worth far more than all we own. It is worth far more than everything we have. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like, he says. He said, just to reiterate this point, he goes on. He says again in verse 45, the kingdom of heaven, it's not just like that man who finds treasure in a field. He says, it's like a merchant in search of five pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. He says, it's like, it's like a businessman who understands the, the craft of trading goods. Specifically, fine goods, 
precious stones, pearls. And he, he is a collector of sorts. That is how he gathers his wealth. He collects pearls, which may strike us not as luxurious as maybe Jesus' contemporaries sought to understand it would be. Because here's, here's the thing. He, he, a pearl tradesman, would be equivalent to a diamond tradesman in today's day and age. And diamonds were known in Jesus' day, but they were far too costly and regarded as too precious to really have any room in popular thought. But pearls... Well, pearls were widely regarded, highly valued in the ancient world. People would pay tremendous amounts of money for pearls. In fact, we know that Cleopatra is said to have owned two specific pearls that were of tremendous value, equivalent today, each one, to around $5.3 million. A tremendous amount of money. He says, it's like... The kingdom of heaven is like a man who is in the highest level of trading goods, a businessman, a connoisseur. And he, he, he finds a pearl that he says, this is worth so much, he goes back and he sells everything else he has so that he can own that one pearl. He says, that's what, that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. He says, it's not just like a man who stumbles onto something, discovers it, and realizes this is worth more than what I own. He says, what is he saying? He's saying, God's kingdom cannot be simply another acquisition in our lives. It cannot be something we simply add to the edges of who we are. And when we understand its true worth, it begins to have a gravitational pull, and we begin to revolve around it. And everything else gets pushed to the edges. And when we understand what God is revealing to us, its treasure and the speaker himself, Jesus himself, it pulls on us to reorient around it. it becomes increasingly God-centered. And he reveals us and he says, this is, this is what God's kingdom is like. That's what's actually valuable. It alters our life. It's powerful if we truly think about it. Years later, a man named Saul would have an encounter with Jesus and he would become the Apostle Paul, the representative of this great gift. And he ends up living the second half of his life trying really hard to reorient his life, focus narrowly on that one thing Jesus himself had revealed to him. He simplified by narrowing down his focus. And later in his life, towards the end of his years, he ends up sitting in a jail cell deciding to express his heart to some believers in Philippi. And I'm hoping that as we walk through this, we can start to sense maybe something of how God may want us to try to work this out in our own lives. And just before we do this, let's just kind of settle something. None of us are Paul. But all of us may have something that God may want us to pursue in a narrow focus. This is what he says. Maybe you could hear the parallel to the parable. He says in verse 7, Whatever gain I had, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the, hear this, surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That I used to build my life on certain things, and I used to think this is the sure foundation, but then I, I was confronted with what actually is valuable in God's eyes, and now I'm recognizing that everything else, honestly, it's not worth that much. All my pursuits 
that actually, when compared to this incredible wealth I have in Jesus, just the worth of knowing him makes everything else pale in comparison. And then he says, he says, and this is, he's just being honest about what he's experienced. He says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. I have suffered the loss of all things because I know him, and I love him, and I don't shy away from that. And he's not speaking about anything other than physical persecution, a sense of rejection and abandonment. It, by the way, in a region of the world where it is still very dangerous to publicly proclaim faith in Jesus. And though we may never experience this ourselves, we, may, we should not make the mistake of assuming that there are not people in the world who, for the very sake of naming Jesus as their own Savior, they run the risk of having complete solidarity with Paul. And he says, Yes, I have suffered the loss of all things, but I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. If we could hear what Paul is actually saying, he doesn't put the accent or the emphasis on everything he lost. He is honest about it. Yes, I've lost all things. Oh, but I have gained so much more. He's shown me that by pursuing him and knowing him, I have actually added to my life. And I may have lost everything I used to build on, but he, he's true wealth. He's true wealth. It's kind of a stunning way of looking at life, a lens that he wears. And, and this is where I just love Paul's honesty because he, even he, says this in verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. Parenthetically, what is he saying? I have a lot of room to grow, guys. I'm not there yet. I have so many more adjustments to make. He says, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. See, the one who is true treasure and wealth step into human history. The one we just celebrated several days ago, his whole purpose is to step in and name us his own. He says, because of that, I now seek to make him my own. I seek to try to orient my life around him. He says, listen, this is the truth. Brothers, I do not consider, verse 13, that I have made it my own. I haven't gone there yet. I have so much more to go. But I narrowed my focus. This one thing I do, he says. Forgetting what lies behind, the old way of living, the way I used to build my life on other things that honestly, at the end of the day, not that valuable. And I strain forward to what lies ahead. I have become consumed with this one achievement. He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. I have understood what Jesus has given me, and now I pursue that goal to gain that prize of what God is doing through Jesus. That has become my simple, single focus. And then he holds this up and he says, as a model, he says, none of us are perfect. We all have room to grow, right? But he says in verse 15, let those of us who are mature, who have been doing this for some time, let's put this lens on. Let's think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. He's patient and kind and merciful and long-suffering. He will always be with us. Listen, only let us hold true to what we have already attained. Let's not give up on what we've already understood. Let's not go back to building on life on things that we already know. They're not really that valuable to begin with. This is, 
a rather challenging way to kind of look at our lives as we step into the opportunity New Year gives. And I have found myself kind of pulled into more visual aids that help me understand what it is we're talking about. And one of the books I, I read was uh, kind of learning to balance the demands of life is what it's called. Balancing the demands of life. And in it, he, there was this chart that I, I kind of thought it helped me out. And I'm hoping this might help us out a little bit. And if we think about it this way, what Jesus is contending for, what he was saying through his parables, what Paul was seeking to live out to the best of his ability, is that we start with God in the center. That we start to discover what it is that God is emphasizing in our lives, and that is what shifts into the middle. He becomes the core. And that we, our lives, ourself, we start to circulate around what he is saying we should focus on. And oftentimes, it is so easy to flip these, isn't it? To actually want God to make sure that he is navigating around us. And yet, true wealth, Jesus says, and what Paul was trying to get at, starts here. A God-centered focus. And, and then a- after we understand that we revolve around what he is revealing to us, what he is saying to us, then the other areas of our lives will start to get their proper place. And so we might have a more God-centered way of thinking about our family and our relationships and our intimate you know, places in which we live life with others or probably about how we think about our work and how we navigate that more God-centered way, God-informed way of stepping into our career and thinking about what actually is valuable there. Or perhaps it's in our own church, spiritual family, our community, and how God may want us to participate, how God may want us to interact And lastly, the other areas of our lives, our social settings and our friendships and all the other spheres that we get involved in. So if we think about it, this becomes, if we start with God at the center and we understand clearly what it is he's asking of us, then everything else gets its proper place. And that is true wealth. So this is what Paul was contending for in his own life. This is what Jesus says when we understand God's kingdom, this is what happens. We understand it's true wealth and value. So how do we do this? How can we unpack this a little bit in our own lives for the coming year? Well, I just want to give us just a couple thoughts, three thoughts. Firstly, I'd like to suggest that the new year gives us an opportunity to evaluate the worth of our pursuits. It gives us an opportunity to take a step back and evaluate the worth of what we are actually pursuing. If we think about it this way, in light of what God is put, is what we are pursuing something connected to what God is saying is most worthy of our attention? Are there pursuits in our lives that fall outside of what God says deserves our devotion? See, this question alone starts to filter things, doesn't it? It starts to add a layer of simplifying what we think deserves our pursuit. How worthy, whether we're actively or passively moving in the direction, can we start to consider what would it look like for God to have something to do with in these areas? in our ambitions, in our aspirations, in our hopes and dreams? Are those in line with what the Lord is saying? Yes, that is what I'm asking for you to focus on. And 
if we do this, we'll start to experience degrees of tension because we're going to have to make decisions. And we're going to have to... See, simplifying is not... It, it, is, it is simple. It is not easy. However, the new year does give us an opportunity to also do something else, to reduce unnecessary tension in our own lives. And I have found unnecessary tension. Tension will always be there. In fact, if we are trying to interact with God, he will bring us to points of tension. He will challenge us. But it will, there are areas in our lives where it is unne- we have unnecessary tension. I, I just want to put three things up there that I have found to be true in my own life. When I experience degrees of tension outside of what God may be saying, one, I would say, is overcommitment, inefficiency, or a lack of consistency. Overcommitment, that is being stretched too thin. Um, you know what? A lack of in- efficiency, inefficiency, or a lack of consistency. If we could just put that diagram back up and just kind of filter this out a little bit. See, this is only possible to, to reduce unnecessary tension is only possible when God occupies the center of our lives. Because I don't know about you, but I have found myself overcommitted when I actually try to be someone I'm not in multiple places at the same time or able to do far more than what I'm capable of. See, only God has no limits. I, on the other hand, do a lot of them. And the more I center my life around God, the easier it is for me to become okay with my limitations. Or maybe it's not that, that, <laughs> that I'm trying to be someone I'm not. Maybe it's that I'm now centering my life around someone else, maybe myself or others. And it becomes so hard to say no when we start to displace what God is saying And yet, that is probably the place where we're going to have a huge sigh of relief when we're able to give ourselves a freedom. You know what, God, what are you saying I should start tailoring back from? That I should be more realistic about my capacities, be a little bit smarter about what I say yes to. Because also, maybe maybe it's not that. Maybe it's learning how to be efficient in certain areas in our lives where it's not so much that we don't have enough time, but we mismanage ourselves in that time. Delaying certain projects has become the largest sense of tension for me. I don't know about you. (laughs) Procrastination makes itself my friend and turns itself into my enemy. (laughs) Mocking me (laughs) all the way through. And maybe this is the year God may want us to strengthen our discipline. Where we learn how to be efficient. And we attain margin by being on task faithful, focused. Now, one area. Or lack of consistency. It's so easy to adopt how we behave depending on where we're at. And so we might behave a certain way in our work environments or another way with our families, a different way in our church communities, a different way in our social settings. And before you know it, that that degree of division of how we behave ends up causing more stress than anything else. Why? Because we're no longer living one life. We're living four. And simplifying actually means reducing it down so we are consistent with how we behave and how we live in all spheres of our lives. We have one life to live. Let's focus on one way of behaving. Let's reduce unnecessary tension 
by asking God for courage to be the same, regardless of our environment, to be strong enough to move. Maybe that is the area God wants to narrow our scope because that leads to true wealth and success. See, as we do this, what we also have is we have an opportunity here. And I'd like to suggest this, that it, it not only gives us an opportunity to consider this, but also to choose one area where we can pursue an increasingly God-centered approach. You know what I love about Paul? He was real. <coughs> hey, I haven't gotten there yet, guys. I mean, I'm doing this to the best of my ability, but I still have room to grow. There are still adjustments I need to make. There are still areas that I need to center around what Jesus is saying. What is that area? Could it be our, our family or our relationships in which we eliminate distractions while we're together and we put maybe electronics aside, we're fully present. We have conversation and maybe we, we bring God into our dialogue. Perhaps it's that. Or maybe it's our own interaction with God himself and we say, you know what, this, this coming year, this, that one area, I'm going to try to discover more about your worth, God. And so I'm going to set myself on a reading plan of your word. And he informs me how valuable you truly are. Or I'm going to invite accountability. Or I'm going to jump into a small group and be a part of your community. Maybe it's those areas. Maybe it's in our friendship circles, the activities we participate in, how we represent his heart. Perhaps somewhere we may need to reevaluate how much stock we've been putting into it. Or perhaps it's in our career and our work. I, because of what I do, I get the opportunity to discuss you know, walk things out with certain people. And uh, one of my friends recently ended up changing jobs from one company to another. And it was a great, exciting opportunity, and he took it. And we were just praying together and talking. And on his heart, he felt like he wanted, he wanted to take advantage of the opportunity by, by making sure that God was the center of his career. And so we started praying about how he would position himself moving in. And we did a, he started courageously taking some steps. He, in his interview process, started discussing his values with his bosses and the people interviewing him. And he started talking about the different ways he's involved in our church community. And he started discussing his involvement with his faith family to illuminate, to bring to the forefront why, what he, what he deems most valuable. Then he did something else, a rather risky thing. He started delineating the scope of what he could and could not do. Before he went in, he started making sure that the Lord was a part of his conversations with his boss. And it was a rather risky move, but it actually ended up compelling them to ask questions. What's going on here? And they started asking follow-up discussions, and they ended up having a dialogue around what my friend deems most valuable, striving to make God the center. And all of a sudden, what happened is our focus moved away from being a witness to now the quality of his work. Because all of a sudden, people were watching. And so our prayer was, God, help him do excellent work <laughs> to the best of his ability. Because now people are watching and paying attention. And you're now at the center. His effectiveness actually ended up moving up. And how he stepped into the environment was altered when God took center stage. I wonder, what might it look like for us to not seek other aspirations and hopes that would just add to our lives, but to narrow our focus to that one area that God may want us to invest ourselves in. And out of that, 
increase in our effectiveness and discover, like the man who just stumbled on it in the field and the merchant who discovered it purposefully, what true wealth looks like. We gain far more, far more than we have. May he help us do this. May he help us do this. I was just thinking on this, and one of the things I stumbled into, and I rather enjoyed this prayer, a New Year's prayer, I think underlines what it is that we're trying to hone in on here. It says this, Heavenly Father, for this coming year, just one request I bring. I do not pray for happiness or any earthly thing. I do not ask to understand the way you lead me. But this I ask, teach me to do the thing that pleases you. I want to know your guiding voice, to walk with you each day. Heavenly Father, make me swift to hear and ready to obey. And thus the year I now begin, a happy year will be, if I am seeking just to do the thing that pleases you. May that be our focus. As we position ourselves, may that be the lens we wear. Because at the end of the day, that was Paul's simple focus. And if we really look at it, Jesus had a rather simplified life that was single-minded, tenaciously committed to stepping into our world and moving forward in what God had asked of him to do, of what was most worth his pursuit. And because of his ability to remain faithful and steadfast, we now get to benefit from the fact that he completed his assignment, the giving away of his life. And in return, we now receive the greatest gift has ever been given. We become wealthy because he stayed focused on what God asked of him. Who in, who in our year will actually increase in wealth because we remain focused to that one area, God says, this is where I want you to lay your resource, attention, energy, pursuits. This is most valuable. May we do that. May we pursue it faithfully and courageously. May we discover true wealth in his eyes. May this year be the best year we experience yet. In a moment, we're going to receive our time of giving, and the band's going to come up, and we're going to share in a closing song, Beauty Simplicity meant to remind us the simplicity of his gospel, the most powerful gift ever offered. May he help us move forward with him together. Let's pray and ask for his blessing. Lord, I just thank you. I thank you that, uh, that you, you truly are the, the role model. You are, you are what we could never be, but you empower us to do it, God. You were faithful until the end. You gave your life away, and therefore giving us a gift of life and hope, of wealth that actually lasts, of a foundation that is never moved. I pray you help us understand a little more clearly what that one area in our own lives you may want us to make you the center of, how to rotate around you. And as we do that, God, I pray that you would give us the joy of the man who stumbled into the treasure in the field. Help us recognize what a gift you give us. Help us discover real wealth. I pray, God, that you would give us a great year ahead. We pray for your blessing over our closing song and our time of offering, God. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.